If someone were to ask you, how would you describe God? How would you respond? And we know there are certain aspects of his being that we can use to emphasize him. Even the term God comes from a Hebrew word which means the mighty one, the majestic one, the powerful one. And obviously as we consider the character of God, we speak of him as the almighty, as the sovereign king of glory, the one who rules over all things. We think of him in his righteousness the fact that he is pure and holy and no evil resides in him. We also hear people talk about the fact that God is love. And sometimes they have trouble putting together the idea of God being love and the fact that he's in control and so many harmful or detrimental things seem to be happening to people in this world. Some who have speculated without trying to utilize the scripture as their foundation have come to conclusions that say, well, if we think about the character of God, he can't really be all loving and at the same time all powerful since all of these things are taking place that seem or appear to be so detrimental to so many individuals. One of the things important for us to recognize when we start talking about the character of God and thinking of him in relationship to his people is the fact that God is good. When a rich young ruler came to the Lord Jesus Christ, that rich young ruler said to Jesus, Good master, what must I do to eat? inherit eternal life. The response of Christ was somewhat arresting because Jesus, instead of answering his question, wanted to probe the reason that he used such a greeting concerning Christ. Why do you call me good? Since there is no one good except God. We throw that term good around often in frivolous ways. I don't know how often I've listened to the news and seen uh, an interview being done about a neighbor who just did something uh, almost horrific to another individual. And that individual being interviewed is scratching his or her head and saying, I just don't understand how that could happen. It seemed like such a good person. Our problem is we don't recognize the reality of our condition now in sin. There is none good except God. Now Jesus was not denying his deity. He was probing the rich young ruler to see if the rich young ruler was merely throwing around a greeting that he might use of any human being who was in a position of authority and trying to be in the good graces of that individual, or if the rich young ruler really recognized the essence of who it is he addressed. There is none good but God. How would you describe God? We can talk about his righteousness, his sinfulness, 
We can talk about his sovereignty, his power, his everywhere presence. But one of the things that is bottom line and essential concerning God is God is good. There's a chorus that is often used in relationship to young people. It's appropriate for the rest of us as well. That chorus says, God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. He cares for me. He cares for me. He cares for me. God is so good to me. In the psalm before us that we're studying, David wants to emphasize that aspect of God's character, not only reflecting upon what God has done for him, but also as he encourages others to embrace God and to have a genuine relationship with him. In Psalm 34, where David begins by saying, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. He says in verse 8, Oh, taste and see. See what? That the Lord is good. And we know in this psalm, David is its author, and he provided us with the occasion in which he penned this psalm. It says in the superscription, it was a psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. Now I want to make sure that as we go back over some of the material that we looked at together last time, that we're not going to just recount what we have already seen, but I want to add to it. And the only thing I want to say here about this psalm that was written by David is that the historical occasion in which David wrote it was the occasion where he was fleeing for his life from Saul. He ended up by making an emotional decision that put him in the land of the Philistines and he was actually in the city of Gath where David's reputation had preceded him for they recognized that David was the enemy of the Philistines who as the military general under Saul had killed his tens of thousands of Philistines. And here David, all alone, his life is in danger. And in the midst of that, he pens this song to convey his thanksgiving and gratitude to God for God's mercy to him. The point I wanted to emphasize now that we didn't last time is David was anointed by Samuel under the direction of the Lord to be the next king of Israel. And David is waiting for that time in which he will be ruling upon the throne of Israel as their king. And now here's David running for his life from King Saul and in the land of the Philistines, and fearful for his life, not only from Saul, but now from the Philistines as well. If David would sit down and think about what was happening, he would say, 
no, this just isn't working out the way I thought it would. And that's where I think we can identify with David. We have the promises that God makes to us as his children. We get hit by circumstances or things that happen to us that it's not going according to what we think should be God's plan for us. We end up being hit by something we didn't expect. A circumstance comes upon us that we didn't anticipate. Things aren't going as well as we thought they should have in light of the promises that God's made to us. God will not fail David and will fulfill the promises that he has made. And David yet is in a situation where he is fearing for his life. And so he composed this psalm looking back on that occasion and expressing the praise and the gratitude that he's giving to God for what God has done. As we had mentioned, this song is a praise and a thanksgiving song. It is also written as a wisdom song to provide instruction for others. And to help people learn it and memorize it, David wrote it as an acrostic. So each verse is beginning with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. He leaves out one letter, because you'll notice there's 22 verses in this psalm. And it's because he repeats a previous letter for the last verse so that it would kind of arrest the attention of the person reading it, memorizing it, to say, here's the point I want to drive home. It's a wisdom song. As Spurgeon reflected upon this song, he said, you know, you can really divide it into two main sections. In the first ten verses, what we have is a hymn of worship being given by David as he expresses his praise and his gratitude to God. And in verses 11 through 22, it's a sermon that David is giving where he wants to provide instruction for others to learn from what has happened to him. Now basically, in its structure, it really falls into four main sections. The first section is the uh, call by David to give praise to the Lord, verses 1 through 3. And then in verses 4 through 7, we see David's confession, or where David explains the reason why he is praising the Lord and wants others to join him. In verses 8 through 14, we have David's counsel, where he says, in light of what has happened to me, which he will emphasize is not unique in my circumstance, but is true for all of God's people, then I counsel you that you should fear the Lord, put your trust in Him, depend on Him. And it's all based on what David understands about the realities in life, his comprehension of this is the way it is for people living in this world under the rule of God. And in verses 15 through 22, he provides us with that understanding. Now this psalm focuses on the Lord. In fact, almost in every verse of the psalm, either God's personal name or a way of describing him is used by David. We see at the beginning of the psalm in verse 1 it says, I will bless the Lord at all times. 
And in our English Bibles, we should recognize that the word translated Lord in our English text is all capital letters. In other words, this is God's personal name. And we learn the uh, way to pronounce God's personal name, if you please, when we look at the Hebrew word, hallelujah, last part, Yah. And it is the first half of God's personal name. And the word translated hallelujah in the English would actually say praise the Lord or praise Yah. And Yahweh, his personal name, is derived from the Hebrew word, the verb to be. So in other words, his personal name has as the foundation or the root meaning of it, the ever-existing one, the ever-present one, the great I Am, Yahweh. And so we find in our English Bibles, His personal name in the Old Testament will always be written with four capital letters spelling the word Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And as we reminded the group in our Bible study hour earlier, the reason it is pronounced as Lord in various languages is because the Jews wanted to be sure they never treated God tritely. So whenever they saw his personal name, instead of ever saying it in a derogatory common way, they would substitute the Hebrew word Adonai, which has as its basic meaning, master or Lord. And therefore it comes into the other languages as Lord. What I want you to understand is, when David wrote this, number one, it wasn't theoretical. And number two, it wasn't just talking about God as some great force controlling nature. Our God, in all of his greatness, is a personal God. And the reality of having the forgiveness of sins and the uh, acceptance by God is all based on a personal relationship with Him. And that personal relationship with Him is only found in the only name given among men whereby we might be saved through the Lord Jesus Christ. And David, who in Psalm 23, who could say, Yahweh is my shepherd. How's it translated into English? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It is a recognition that David had this personal relationship with God, and God was the one guiding, directing, and controlling the things in his life. Now, as David expresses his praise in verses 1 through 3, as we looked at together last time, we realize that what David wants to do is direct the attention to the Lord and not to himself. Now, if you look through this psalm, other than in the superscription, the only thing David says about his circumstance was, this poor man cried to the Lord and the Lord heard him. It is the fact that as David stated in Psalm uh, 34 verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me. 
So often when we want to offer praise to God, we want to talk and embellish about all the things in our experience. Well, I want you to understand that when we talk about praising God, it's not about you. And it's not about me. It's not focusing and dwelling on what was happening to me. To really give God the praise and to be sure that He's the center. He's the focus. He's the one that's being exalted and lifted up. Is to draw attention to the unique character of God and what sets Him apart from all of creation and from every creature. There is no one or nothing like our God. And God brings us into different circumstances so that we can learn more of the uniqueness of Him, the sufficiency of Him, and the greatness of Him. And when you or I are called upon to praise the Lord, we need to be sure we have thought through how we want to express it so that God is the one who has preeminence. And God is the one who is receiving the glory. The other thing that I think is so important for us to see here is that when David offered praise and it was being expressed in the presence of others, right? Because he said, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. He thought out how and what he wanted to say. It wasn't like just at the spur of the moment, oh yeah, this is why I want to praise God. Now if praise is something that he says is continually on my mouth, my soul is making its boast in the Lord and the humble will hear it, then the realization is David was a thoughtful person. In the sense that as he was going through the experiences of his day, there was a realization that God was involved in the things that were transpiring. And I want to appropriately not only express my dependency upon God, my gratitude to God, but also to do it in a way that brings glory and honor to him. You and I have occasions when we offer praise to God, may we learn from the examples in the Psalms that individuals who offered praise to God made sure that the primary focus of what was being said was on God Himself. And the second was that they thought out how they would express it so that it would have an impact upon others. David thought it out to the extent that he said, I want to make sure that people can learn from and benefit from what happened to me. So he wrote it as the acrostic, the ABCs, so that it could be memorized. In this psalm, David is resolved to praise and exalt the Lord and realizing that God is worthy of that praise. Then in verses 4 through 7, David focuses on the reason why he is offering praise and why others can join him in offering praise as well. Notice what David says in verses 4 
through 7. I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to Him and were radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Now notice the way in which in these four verses, David goes from himself to something universal. Back to himself, and again, something universal. I sought the Lord, he answered, They looked to him and their faces were radiant. This poor man cried, but the angel of the Lord is the one who camps round about not just me, but those who fear him. And he rescues them. The point David is making is that what has happened to David is not unique for him. And dear brother and sister in Christ, that's where you and I can take real encouragement. When we look at what happened to David, there are times when we can say, well, you know, David, he was really special in the eyes of the Lord. Now we know that God had some very commendable things to say about David. Even before David was anointed as king over Israel, God said David was a man after God's own heart. David was an individual who almost to his own shame expressed his utter dependence upon the Lord. But what David wants us to understand is that while there is a specific designation that the Lord had said of him, what God did for David is not uniquely for David. These other individuals looked to him and their faces were radiant. The angel of the Lord camps round about those who fear him and he rescues them. What's the point? If you are one of God's children, God cares for you. If you are one of God's children, You are just as special to him as was true of David. And the beauty of what I find here is David was in this predicament where his emotions had overpowered his reason. And he ended up in a situation that you think he should have never been there in Gath. But when David prayed to God, God didn't say, you dummy. It's your own fault you're here. I sought the Lord and he answered me. This poor man cried to the Lord and he delivered me. He rescued me. See, we're never wonderful saints with whom God can be justly proud. We're always his foolish and erring children with whom he is long-suffering and patient. Even as David said in Psalm 103, the Lord knows our frame. He remembers we're just dust. We're creatures. He understands how short we uh, come. 
before his glory. He recognizes there's human limitations. But God intervenes in the affairs of his people to accomplish what is for their well-being. That's why Paul could say in Romans chapter 8, a great verse that while it far too often is used tritely, has profound significance and meaning. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Why does God do that? Not because his children deserve it, not because his children seek it, not because his children merit it, but because God is so good. Because of the essence of his being, he always does what is beneficial and for the well-being of his children. David said, I sought the Lord, he answered me. Now seeking the Lord on that occasion would have actually been a prayer that he offered in his panic. Because here he is, acting as if he's insane, a lunatic, fen, uh, feigning madness before Abimelech. And Abimelech said, i got enough lunatics in my kingdom. I don't need another one to take care of. And drove him away. There's God intervening. Instead of him, Abimelech saying, well, I'll get rid of one of our key enemies. He responded with no interest. David, in his panic, cried to the Lord. And David was one who had cultivated his walk with the Lord and depended and trusted in him. And so, having that relationship, in his emergency, he cried to the Lord and the Lord answered him. And he delivered him from all my fears. This word translated into English as fears is not used that often in the Old Testament. It's a word which really means the concerns that terrorize the soul. It is the things that occupy one's thoughts. It's what is dreaded. It is the dread of the unknown or the horrible experiences of life that jeopardize even life itself. And so David is saying, I'm in a terrifying situation. I have no resources in myself. My circumstance has me all eaten up inside with fear. But when David turned his attention to the Lord, he was delivered, he was saved. It's the same word that is used to reflect upon God bringing spiritual salvation to his people from the penalty of sin. In his experience, in his circumstance, David was delivered from the things that brought into his heart 
that unsettled fear, that horrible dread of what was about to happen to him. He says, this poor man, verse 6, David is looking upon his situation, not economically, but the fact that he's really bankrupt before God. He has nothing to commend himself to God. His inner self is impoverished. He's laid low. But in spite of that, he cried to the Lord. And the Lord heard him. And the Lord rescued him. David was a man that even in the extreme circumstances of life, had his confident trust in the sufficiency and capability of his God. So in the same way, what happened to David happens to all of God's people. He says in verse 5, they, the rest of those who trust in the Lord, who in this psalm are called the humble, the God-fearers, They are called the brokenhearted, the crushed in spirit, the righteous, the servants of the Lord. They look to him. And what happens? Their faces were radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. Go with me to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. Verse 11 has a refrain that in a similar format is found in verse 5 and then again is found in verse 5 of Psalm 43. But notice what it says. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. Put your confident trust in the Lord. Why? For I shall yet praise Him. Well, who is this God that He will yet praise? He is the help of my countenance and my God. What happens to your facial expressions when you're worried? What happens to your facial expressions when you're overcome and gripped with fear. You can read it on someone's face, can't you? But here are individuals who are in life-threatening circumstances, just like David found himself, and instead of their faces reflecting the terror that had been gripping them, instead of it reflecting the anxiety that they were experiencing, they began knowing a peace which surpasses all understanding. And their faces were radiant. In other words, they were glowing, beaming. And those who seek the Lord and put their confidence in Him, He says their faces will never be ashamed. What's the picture that is being described? In other words, just like those who depended upon the Lord, and we have records of that in the Scripture, or you and I find Christians of our own day who go through times of great difficulty and they find that they handle it triumphantly, 
not in depression, but in real seated joy, it encourages the rest of us to know God is so good. And when we go through those times of great difficulty and we turn our attention to him, instead of our lives being controlled by fear and dread and worry and anxiety, there is a joy and a peace that God gives to his people. <coughs> Jesus in the upper room. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Hope in God. Hope also in me. In the world, you're going to have what? Many tribulations. But stop pouting. Be of good cheer. Why? I have overcome the world. Or look at how Paul stated it in the book of Philippians, where he says, Rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. And in case you missed it, again I say, rejoice. Be anxious for nothing. But you can't just ignore what you dread. You can't just ignore what you fear. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will bind up, will garrison, will fortify your hearts and soul in Christ Jesus the Lord. They looked to Him. They were radiant. And their faces will never be ashamed. They're not going to be let down. They're not going to be disappointed. They're not going to say God didn't do what God said he would do. They're not going to find out God really isn't a refuge and a strength and an ever-present help in any time of trouble. They are going to learn that the Lord truly is good. He is sufficient and he can be depended upon in all of life's circumstances. And the reason is, God really cares for his people. And so David says in verse 7, the angel of the Lord. It's a term which has to do with God himself. It's the way he came and manifested in a visual way his presence to his people. And the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And this idea of fearing God means I'm one that's trusting him. I'm depending on him. I give him the respect and the reverence that he deserves. Or even as it says in Psalm, um, excuse me, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. What's the greatest of all commandments? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Those are the individuals who have that relationship that are genuinely fearing the Lord. Or as Solomon stated when he wrote the Proverbs to his students, to his son, and he said, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, do not lean 
on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. The idea of fearing the Lord is trusting Him, depending upon Him, building your life upon Him. And the angel of the Lord camps around. He's the shield that protects and watches over the people of God. And in those circumstances that are beyond our ability to do anything about, what does God do? He rescues them. So what's the admonition? Taste and see. See what? That the Lord is good. While it is so beastly hot, and this year, in the Metroplex, us having Houston-like humidity, that just saps all of the energy from you. There aren't many good things in Texas in August. You want to be inside where it's air conditioned. My wife has a few foods that she almost craves. She finds great delight in. One of those is associated with August in Texas. Watermelon. And boy, when you get a good watermelon that is sweeter than candy. We just got one this past week. I cut it open, started looking at it, and you know, when you're the one carving it up, you got to taste it, don't you? You got to find out what it's like. And I said, Oh, Kathy, wait till you taste this melon. What is it David saying? Taste and see. For Kathy, it wasn't enough for me to say, That melon is good. She needed to experience it. For herself. We hear people saying, God is so good. We can read about it in the scripture and it becomes an intellectual concept, almost just theoretical in our thinking. But today as you go through life, you need to be one like the individuals who sought the Lord and their faces were radiant. You need to be the one who has his confident or her confident trust in the Lord. And I know for sure he's not going to let you down or disappoint you. But you can't learn it from books. We see how God has disclosed and revealed himself in his word. But what you and I each need is to know that God is taking us through real difficult circumstances in life. To really stretch us beyond where we think we can go and bear. Because he wants to teach us more about himself and to find out just how sweet 
that melon is. Taste and see. The reality is, Christianity, being a child of God, is not a religious experience. Christianity and being a child of God is having a relationship with the Lord and walking with Him each day. And what God's people learn more and more with each passing day and moment is our God is so good. Jesus said it like this. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon, uh, take my yoke upon you, and learn of me. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. We want to complicate things and make them harder than they need to be. And the reality is there's only one thing that any one of us really needs. And that is to draw near to God. To have Him in our daily experience. To taste and see what? That the Lord is good. God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. That little chorus was written by one from their personal experience. And my question to you today is, is that chorus your chorus? Is Psalm 34 your song? Are you one that can say, this poor man cried to the Lord and the Lord heard? That you're an individual whose face is radiant even as you go through deep waters and the trials of life because there is that undergirding care of God who will never leave nor forsake nor abandon anyone who puts his or her trust in him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed are those who take refuge in Him.